0: Welcome back to the MicroConf Podcast. I'm Rob Walling. This is a MicroConf recap episode where we pull the audio from one of the best talks from the past 12 years of MicroConf. In today's episode, we're gonna walk through Patrick Campbell's talk on how he bootstrapped ProfitWell to a $200 million exit. This is one of the more notable talks from MicroConf in Denver in April of 2023. There are a lot of visuals to this one. You may wanna watch it on YouTube. And my little secret, I go in and I put it to 2x because, you know, talks are long, and who has time to sit in front of a a video for 45 minutes? But the audio to this is also very insightful, and I hope you get a lot of value out of it. Before we dive into that, tickets for MicroConf US in Atlanta next April 2024 are on sale. This event will sell out. If you're thinking about coming to Atlanta April 21st through the 23rd to see me co-host this event with Leanna Patch and to see speakers like myself, Rand Fishkin, and several others, head to microconf.com US to grab your ticket before they sell out. We had an amazing event just a few months ago in Denver and I expect the event in Atlanta to be no different. So microconf.com slash us to grab your ticket today. Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let you know about our microconf mastermind program. If you listen to this show, you know that I've talked a lot on this podcast about how important masterminds have been to my own success, but finding the right founders for your mastermind group can be very hard. Over the past few years, my team at MicroConf has successfully matched more than a thousand founders into mastermind groups by looking at revenue, team size, strengths, goals, and several other data points to make sure your peer group is the right fit. Once you're matched, you'll also have access to our mentorship series, a three-month program where you can connect with some great minds in sales, business development, marketing, and more. If you're looking for accountability, honest feedback about your business, and the opportunity to make new friends that care about your company and your success, you can learn more at microconf.com slash masterminds. So with that, let's dive into how Patrick Campbell bootstrapped ProfitWell to a $200 million exit.
1: I think what we did right at ProfitWell is we were really good at thinking. And I know that sounds weird like everyone here is good at thinking, but if I had to kind of contextualize everything down, we were really, really good at thinking through how we thought versus what we thought. And when I look at companies that are really successful, whether they're like bootstrapped, funded, anything in between, I think this is fundamentally the thing that separates the companies that do really, really well for whatever your definition of well is, Versus the companies that kind of just are stagnant or, or maybe, you know, pass away as companies. And so this is the concept that I really, really want to unpack today. To kind of really bring this home to, to hopefully everyone in the room here, um, everyone here has some sort of mission, right? Some of you are trying to like save the world. You have more of like a social impact company. Some of you are trying to disrupt a particular industry and conquer all who kind of face you. And then there's some of you, most of you, you just want a really great life for your team, your company, your family, if you're solo. But what's really interesting is you kind of like face that journey with this like, lookout world, here I come, I'm gonna, you know, roar and be really, really successful and everything's gonna be amazing. And then what the world does is it responds with what I like to call the Trinity of Fu. And that Trinity is a mother. And the first part of the Trinity or the first pillar is basically the market, okay? The market's like, Hey, you know that like cute app that you thought of at MicroConf in one of the like sessions? That cute app is now facing a market that has 16X number of competitors. You know, CAC is up 130%, 220% if you're a sales and marketing software over the past 10 years. You know, and just to like throw insult to injury, you wanna hire and you're bootstrapped. Well, team tenure is down 30% over the past five years and team is really, really expensive. So the market's just like, yeah, nice. Like, it's a really little cute security app you got there. Like, good luck, right? Don't worry, it gets worse. So the second pillar of the Trinity of FU is tech. AI, that's the slide. Are we dead? Are we all gods now? Are we obsolete? Nobody knows. But AI, obviously huge, huge shift in our markets, but there's a bunch of little tech things that have always come into different markets that have taken that really cool premium feature you have and all of a sudden makes it into a commodity overnight um, and all kinds of things in between. And then my last and really favorite pillar of the Trinity um, is the personal pillar, right? Some of you live with monsters, children, right? Some of you are gonna get sick some of you are gonna have family members that get sick. Or my personal favorite part of this pillar, some of you have parents who, even after you have a life-changing exit, still want you to go become a doctor for some reason. <laughs> that actually happened in the past year. Um, the point is, is that you have all of this working against you, right? All of this stuff is like, hey, I love your market. I love what you're going after, but this is the stuff that really, really is gonna make your life hard. And then unfortunately, our response historically is, oh my God, I found this thing on a podcast. Let's implement this thing. It's going to be awesome, right? Or, hey, you know Chamath? He said that thing on the All In podcast. That's really relevant to my one-person startup, right? And then my other favorite here is like, you know, I'm thinking of cold plunging. Like, what's your morning routine? I've never been asked more in my life the past year what the fuck my morning routine is, Okay. I wake up at 4 a.m., I get a coffee and I go to my computer. That's it, okay? And it's not that these things aren't important, right? I don't want to trivialize. It. I learn so much from talks and podcasts and videos. The morning routine that you need is so important to you. But all of these things that we kind of talk about in the context of the Trinity of FU are all the what's, right? And when I talk about the how, the how really comes down to how you filter those ideas. And again, when I look at the companies that do really, really well versus the companies that haven't done so well, it's typically leadership that is either really, really good at filtering the what with the how, or those companies that are just so enamored or reacting constantly to the what. And so I wanna spend the next 30 minutes or so basically walking through um, how we thought about building some things out. First thing. And this one's going to hurt a little bit. It's really simple, but it's going to hurt because some of you are going to want to like break up with your girlfriends or boyfriends after you hear this. And that's kind of the intention. All right. What a preview, right? Exciting preview. Okay. And that's the journey framework. And the real question that this really comes down to is, are you and your business partners, but even like your life partners, are you all on board with the destination you're going to and the nature of that particular destination? This is the first question that's super, 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 super important. And the reason that this comes to be is that when you think about making a decision of what you're going to do with your life, especially here with, you know, honestly, we all have it pretty good, right? Like we're not digging ditches. We get to choose what type of app we were going to build. All of us can put up landing pages and, you know, actually can make money. It might not be as much money as we want, but it's really, really easy to get started here, right? And so you have the choice, the privilege to choose your destination, right? And along with that destination, no matter how you're going to go about it, there is a nature of destination or nature of that journey for that destination that aligns to it. Here's what I mean by that. There's really only three paths. And some of you are going to push back on this, but we'll get to why I really only think there are three paths. The first path that you have is a low payoff path. And this is not a bad path. This is a path where you can go and you can create the equivalent of a corner store or a series of corner stores 10 years ago, and you can create a really, really great business where your family is doing phenomenal. And the journey of that path is awesome. The journey of that path can be pretty leisurely. It can just be you. You don't have to raise money. This is the beauty of the internet, right? The next path is this medium payoff path. This is a path where you want that, you know, want for nothing type lifestyle, which means you're probably going to have to work really, really hard at first, a lot of hours at first, and then those hours can slowly go to zero. This is the path that is really, really common at MicroConf. You might have to raise a little bit of money from TinySeed. I'm not an LP yet, but I'm still a fan, just to be clear. But it's one of those paths that's really, really common. And then there's the, like, big payoff, want to make a dent in the universe type path that you're going after. And that particular path in terms of the journey is really freaking hard. Now, when you choose your particular path, it is by no means a guarantee of that success and that you're going to get there. But the reason I bring this up and when I talk to a lot of founders, this is one of the first questions I ask, especially if they're having any like, should I keep going type questions, is because you need to make sure that you're aligned to where you're trying to go with how you're going to get there. Now, the issue a lot of people have with these three paths is they go, well, you know, there was this company that had like 20 hours per week, and that 20 hours per week, they got all of a sudden this like really, really big exit, right? Well, there's always exceptions to the rule, but if you look at most companies, the ones that are going after a big payoff need to be really, really hard charging. Get the heck out of my way in terms of their tenor. And the ones that want a really good lifestyle, they shouldn't be working life and limb every single week in order to get that particular lifestyle. And so it's really, really, really important that you align. And if you're on the left side here, that's fantastic. But then make sure you're not working 70 hours a week. If you're on the right side, you're probably gonna to have to raise money. This is one of the biggest problems with ProfitWell. We look at you know, externally like, oh, this was a big success and I'm not complaining. But when we actually look at, we wanted to go after this big payoff path, We didn't do the things that we were supposed to. We should have raised money. We should have went for it in terms of what we were trying to do because we kept talking a game of going after that big payoff, but we made mistakes by not making those decisions. So the journey and the destination and how you're gonna get there are incredibly important to align on. And when I think of my issues with part-time co-founders in the beginning, which was an absolute disaster, this was the thing that would have helped me if I said, hey, where are we going? You guys want over here, I want over here, this isn't gonna work out. Make sense? All right. Next up. All right, so we have a journey. What do we do on that journey, right? How do we actually operate in terms of building our company? The framework that I found really, really helpful is a framework that helps you focus. Like are we actually focused on the right things at the right time? And this is useful whether, again, you're a solopreneur and trying to build something out or you're trying to go after that really, really big path over time. Because no matter what your goal was, again, great life, trying to change the world, trying to disrupt a particular industry, there's a bunch of different things that push you forward on that particular path or hold you back on that path, right? Headwinds, tailwinds. Every other metaphor you've seen on Twitter, we could name many, many of them, right? Well, the thing that push you forward, not to be so obvious, is growth, right? And the things that hold you back typically are around operations. Even if you have the most efficient operating business in the world, it's not going to be zero or less than zero, right? It's one of those things that's still going to hold you back a little bit. And so the way I like to think about any planning cycle, not only at ProfitWell, but now at Paddle, is when we're putting together an initiative, is that initiative pushing things forward? Or is it something that all of a sudden is going to hold us back? Or are we cleaning up something that's holding us back? And if you start to atomize this down, you start to realize there's a bunch of different things underneath these particular curves, right? All of a sudden under the growth path, we have obviously acquiring customers, we have monetizing them, and we have expanding revenue on those customers. And under this operations path, all of a sudden we have finance, billing, operations, all of these different things. And product is a backdrop because product drives everything, right? And we can atomize this further into every little thing that basically goes into each of these two curves, right? And so when we go through our planning cycles and we did this prior to Paddle and we're doing it at Paddle right now, we basically look at these two curves and we decide what season are we in for whatever we're trying to do. And obviously for like, you know, an IPO path type company, there's a lot of different resources that we have. But even when, you know, bootstrap ProfitWell, we're able to really prioritize by measuring as much as we can, even if it was just logical um, measurement of like what's going to have the most impact, right? And so it helps you understand exactly where things are going, and then obviously the whole vision is to not only push that growth forward, but also make sure that those operations pieces become not liabilities, but actually things that are assets. Now to kind of operationalize this a little bit further, um, I can share this in depth. I'm not going to go through it right now. Um, We actually use a really lightweight planning cycle. Um, Every team has their own type of planning, right? So product uses more traditional OKRs. Marketing uses kind of a hybrid But at a company level, we have this thing called Paddle Compass. Basically what it is is three to nine initiatives over a six-month period that were basically hard-charging, that have measurable outcomes, all the really traditional goal-setting type stuff. And we make sure that it really supports that strategic vision in some particular way on the slide that I showed you before. This is the way to kind of like think about things. It's like nicely elegant design. And then the most important part, particularly those of you who have teams, This is way overboard, but just making sure that obviously the branding of those initiatives goes throughout the company. So if you're a five person team, you might have one initiative, two initiatives for the next six months, but the branding is one of the things that really unlock this internally. Because all of a sudden the branding is what people latch onto. Come up with cute names, you want something that people are willing to print a t-shirt over in my opinion, because that really, really resonates with everyone and it allows the team to be really aligned. Make sense? The joke stopped, just so you know. That was intentional. I got to be serious, Patrick, now, okay? All right. People in alignment, and I promise we'll get to pricing. That's the thing that everyone cares about. So, people in alignment. Um, How many of you here have at least one team member, even if they're a contractor? Okay, cool. Anyone here have, like, 10 or more people that they work with, contractors? Okay, amazing. Once you start getting more and more kind of nodes within your company things become much, much more complex, right? Which is probably the most obvious statement that I could have made here, right? But the funny thing is, is that a lot of us don't spend enough time making sure that that team is aligned as much as possible. Now, some ways you can do that is through planning cycles like we just talked about. But I think the thing that a lot of us don't realize is that alignment, not only with where we're going, but even just the strategy of how we're gonna get there is one of those things you have to repeat over and over and over again. And we as leaders, especially as founders, like I was this guy and I still kind of am this guy, we kind of go, well, I fucking said it at all hands, right? Like, why don't they get it, right? And it's like, I said it again, why are they asking these questions? And it's like, because they're humans, right? And you're not perfect in how you communicate and therefore when you say, hey, we're gonna go climb this particular hill, it's one of those things where they're like, they're not necessarily resonating with it because they didn't even know there was a hill to begin with and you sat with that information for so long. And to kind of like bring this home a little bit before we get to the framework, I think again, all of you have this mission and you're expecting every single person you hire and you talk to, to be kind of in this perfect alignment, right? And you'll occasionally have these people who just aren't aligned at all and you're like, yeah, I'll just fire those folks, right? The problem is, is that this particular vision of how a company continues to build with people just isn't the case, right? In reality, everything looks like this. Because everyone's got their own idea of what you mean. Everyone's just going after like, well, I thought this was the best idea or I don't respect that person or all kinds of different things. Like more people, more problems, right? But the funny thing is, is like, you wanna be able to move everyone directionally in the same kind of process and where they're particularly going. So this is the framework I found really, really helpful Even if it's just two of you, I think this is amazingly helpful to figure out like where the heck you're going. Even if you're solo, I think it really helps introspectively get your thoughts all in order. And the first piece is, what the heck are you doing? Like where are you going? And this is deceptively simple, right? For ProfitWell and then Paddle, our whole thing that we came up with is we wanna grow and run subscription companies automatically. And that automatic word was something that we fought over for a lot, because automatic means like truly automatic, not like you get a WYSIWYG editor and all this other stuff as a customer, but it's like, no, you just plug it in and it does its job. And then the next thing that we identified, which was really, really critical for us, was this concept of a mission metric. And a mission metric is just, are we directionally moving where we want to go with this particular mission? So for us, the mission metric was basically how much revenue was on profit well. So how much billions of dollars was flowing through that system because theoretically we're doing really, really good at acquiring users and customers then. And also we're doing our job by like growing these companies automatically if that number's going up. And just with these two particular pieces, we repeated this over and over and over again. It was one of those things that was the first slide of every internal deck, the first slide of every all hands. It was one of those things we wanted to make sure that people were annoyed by it. That's how much we talked about it, right? And then the next step down was really making sure like, what are the guiding principles of how we're gonna get there? So for us, it was this whole concept of do it for you. So not only in terms of product, but customer success, even sales, doesn't matter when it was just one person on a sales team, et cetera. It was like, we're gonna do it for you. That's our company ethos. And the other piece was be the most helpful brand in SaaS. Anyone here see profitable or price intelligently content before? We publish a ton of content. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But the idea was, is when people are making a decision, it's like, are they going in this particular direction? Is the decision guiding us in this particular light? And then as we develop different teams, each team was required to put together essentially a memo, which was a plan on how they were going to fit into that particular mission. So for our marketing team, it was very much in terms of this recur media concept, where we had eight different podcasts and video series and all that kind of fun stuff to kind of educate the market. And most importantly, where I find most people miss out in terms of management of, like, leaders that they're trying to bring in is the tempo. And the tempo is basically how much of whatever you're claiming you're going to do are you actually going to do in a given period. Most of the time when you're trying to hire someone to lead marketing or lead product, this is where the misalignment ends up happening. Like, everyone buys into the upper part because normally it's a little bit higher level so people can get on board with it. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, this is how we're going to get there. But you as a leader who doesn't necessarily have marketing expertise, you're like, I don't know why it's not working. Or I just feel like there's this resentment that's building up. And most of the time it's because you haven't agreed on like, how much that person's actually going to ship or what good actually looks like for that particular organization. And so this framework was really, really helpful in aligning the team as much as humanly possible. Make sense? All right, you want more tactical stuff to like make money and stuff? Is that... You want that more? Everyone, like, when, when I started ProfitWell, I, I'm a first time founder. Like I'd never, i never, I also, not entrepreneurial. Like I wasn't the kid like hustling in college in high school. I was gonna go save the world. Again, dad wanted me to be a doctor. I was like, I hate blood, it's terrible. Um, and so what I ended up doing is I went and I uh, was like, I'm gonna be a lawyer. And then I was like, that's dumb. So I went and worked for the government for a while. Um, and when I founded, give you that context, because when I founded ProfitWell, everyone, and this is the advice we all share, People are really important. Culture is really important. I thought that was the biggest crock of shit ever. I was like, it's going to be the product that fails. It's going to be our marketing that fails, right? All of this stuff, why does it matter? And it really matters because as soon as you have five people, everything becomes a lot more complex than you think it is. And yeah, you can get on the phone and you can hop on a call, but like this is so much easier just to repeat this. And then your managers start repeating this. And it depends on how big you want to get. It's one of those things that can align as much as possible. But we'll talk about making money because that's what everyone wants to talk about. All right, demand gen. Who here has sales on their team? Who here has marketing on their team? Everyone should be raising their hands, it's insane. Like let's not get into the meme of like, build product, build marketing. Um, the answer is both, just to be surprised. The thing with demand gen, what I struggled with so much, and demand gen, my definition is like, how do you move people to buy your product? That's really, really basic. I think we overcomplicate this a lot. And so this framework that we've kind of developed is this whole concept of like rivers and pools. And to give you a little bit of context, if you're not really sure what's going on with sales and marketing, you have this like timeline, right? On the right side, you have someone converting either through self-serve or through a sales process. And then on the left side are people who have like not even Thought about the problem that you're trying to solve and there's a bunch of different things between those two periods that you can use to go after that person right as you get closer to a point of conversion people are like asking for demos right all the way in the far left you have CEOs that they want to grow and your B2B product can help them grow but again they haven't like heard of you nor have they actually thought about the way to grow that you actually solve and the reason that this is really really crucial it's most of the tactics that you look at, which are really, really important because they're the core of demand gen, are what I like to call the river. So these are the things like cold email, a little bit of inbound marketing, advertising, influencer marketing, social media. These are all the things that move people from a place of not hearing about you or kind of being aware of you to getting on that demo or going into a self-serve trial or whatever ends up happening. So you need to constantly make sure that river is moving. And all the tactics that you read are like, how do we widen that river? How do we move that river more quickly? And if you kind of think about it, this is where the funnel comes from, right? So the funnel is like, haven't really heard of you to hearing about you, raising their hand in some particular way, and then closing them in terms of sales or some sort of self-serve flow. Now, what's really kind of interesting, though, is that most money and most kind of time and effort is spent on the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel. The issue is, is that all data, and I don't have time to go deep into this data, indicates that it's diminishing in effectiveness. So sales folks are more expensive. Sales is getting harder and harder. All those customer acquisition cost numbers that I talked about in the beginning, those are all going up. It's because we used to have a bunch of different marketing channels that were opening up every single quarter. Like, I'm sure some of you bought Google AdWords at a penny a click. I'm sure some of you were the first folks on Facebook. Those were the days. Everything was amazing, right? Now it's like fuck, you know, it's just like one of those things where it's really, really hard to acquire those customers. And so you do really, really need that river. But the thing that we did really, really well at ProfitWell and looking at the data, and obviously we had access to a lot of this data, was what if we made this part of the funnel bigger? Because most inbound marketing, all it is is going to provide some sort of signal from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel. Like, hey, they raised their hand, they downloaded an ebook, right? That's all it really is. But because buying now, especially in the software space, but really in all spaces, is so much more on the onus of the customer coming to you, that timing might not be right. So I want to build as much of a pool as possible inside this particular middle of the funnel so that when the timing comes, I'm the first person they think of for that particular problem. Or one of my nudges gets them to kind of convert into a demo or a self-serve flow. And so the two ways that we really went after this, one was freemium, which I know some of you are like, oh, freemium, you're the product if it's freemium. Like, it's not 2007 anymore. That's not how freemium works, okay? Freemium is one of the most, I was so anti-freemium 10 years ago too. Freemium is one of the most beautiful things that like we have in our industry. Because think about it this way. What better content do you have than your product? There is no better content that you have. and That's what freemium is. Freemium is part of acquisition. It's not part of your pricing. And so building out some sort of freemium, and there's a bunch of ways to do this. I wrote a book on freemium, if anyone wants to take a look at of it. But building up that freemium base, builds that pool, and then I own the right every single month to nurture that particular lead because they're hopefully using that product in some particular way. And freemium, if you want to know if you're being successful or not, it's not looking at 14, 30-day conversion. It's looking at a cohort over six months of who has converted when they started freemium. That's how you should be focusing on freemium. Big questions though, do you know how to convert leads to customers, and is that river flowing fast enough? If the answer to those questions is no, don't focus on freemium, don't focus on the middle of the funnel, you gotta build that river up first. This is a big mistake a lot of companies make. They get really excited to give away a freemium product. Best freemium out there, it starts, unless you have a top 50 growth person on your team, which if you have to ask, you don't, um, ourselves included, we didn't have a top 50 growth person. But, the best folks, normally it's about two years into their life cycle when they know the answers to these particular questions. Make sense? All right, one more pool. I alluded to this before. Um, We started this thing called Recur, which was basically our equivalent of like Netflix. And we did this when everyone said we were idiots and they were stupid, and especially because we were bootstrapped. Um, And basically what this was is eight different video and uh, podcast series that we had. And the reason that we did this was, again, because we didn't want to just have this signal. Like we were doing eBooks and blog posts and all this other stuff, and that was just a signal for our sales team. We wanted to build that particular pool. And what you're doing with shows, podcasts, video series, et cetera, is you're building audience. That's the distinction. You're building that audience and that pool up so that you can harvest that audience over time. So we had a video series, it's still out, it's called Pricing Page Teardown. I collect data and I just tear down pricing pages. I get 75,000 views per episode. And it's not Mr. Beast numbers, but 75,000 people to look at B2B pricing page content is insane if you really think about it, right? That's the power of what you're trying to do. So what I recommend is if you're trying to build a pool, um, I would start a podcast, just start interviewing leads and customers. Like that's the easiest way to start. You don't have to do video. You don't have to think about how you look or anything like that. Really, really easy you want to go a little bit more advanced, if you want to like ball out like Arvid does with his whole studio and everything, which I'm somewhat jealous and trying to compete with him on, uh, then you can turn each blog post into a video. That's the other way to start. That's how we started. We just started turning our blog posts to videos. Engagement went through the roof. Now, again, virality is not what you're going for. The thing I like to tell people is, imagine you had a webinar that had 500 people on it every single week. You would be ecstatic by those numbers, right? If you have a podcast that has a few hundred people of your right target customer every single week, that's really, really, really powerful. Make sense? Let's talk about retention quick. Um, I don't wanna offend anybody, but this is the crowd I'm always nervous talking about retention, because the response I get, well, if the product was valuable enough, people would stick around, right? And you're not wrong. The problem is, is that value is not binary. So the way that we started thinking about retention, and we built a bunch of products to help with retention, so we really were able to get down and dirty with this, is that you obviously have this spectrum, right? Now one side you have people who are huge advocates, they love you, On the other side you have your critics. When we talk about retention as a community, most of the time we talk about what I like to call strategic retention. What's the next feature? What's the right segment that we should be targeting? What is the right messaging that we should be going after, onboarding, all of these really, really important things but we miss out because of that conversation, this middle section, which I like to call tactical retention. And that's basically all the little nudges that you can do to move someone from recently canceling to not, or thinking about canceling to not. And when we break down the data, it depends on the vertical you're in. Your strategic retention's the majority of your retention problem, don't worry. But that tactical retention is about 25 to 40% of the problem, which is a significant chunk that if you can solve post-product market fit, everyone gets excited. And so a couple of different things to optimize. Um, One, term length. So getting monthly customers onto quarterlies or annuals, I would go for annuals as much as possible. Um, Lifetime value is two to 800% higher. And the only thing you have to do is you just gotta ask people beyond the sign up. Most of us, the only time we ask someone for an annual upgrade is when they're basically signing up. Best thing to do is every 60 to 90 days, just go out to that customer base and just say, hey, and you can get this in the slides. Like, by the way, we have this annual plan. We'll give you two free months. One free month. It doesn't even have to be that big of a discount. All of a sudden you get a lot of those folks basically coming on board. Another kind of controversial topic for this room, cancellation flows. We have this weird conception that when someone breathes on our cancel button that we should just like delete their data, say, oh, I'm so sorry, like refund them everything. The opposite is also not true. You shouldn't hold them hostage. But what we found in looking at about two to three million different flows of people cancelling, you have about 18 to 30 seconds before people start to get aggravated. And what you should do is ask them two questions. First question is the obvious one. Why are you leaving? Don't do open response. Just make it multiple choice. You'll get better data. Second question is the counterintuitive one. What did you like about the product? And the reason you ask this question is because they're on a freight train to cancel. And when they're on a freight train to cancel, all of a sudden they're sitting there and they're like, I hate this product right now. They're probably not that intense, but they're just like, I'm leaving. But when you ask them what they liked about it, you're stopping that freight train and allowing them to actually have a moment to think about what they actually liked. And with these two questions, you can then prime them for a salvage offer, pause offer, bunch of different things. One of my favorites is a maintenance plan. Hey, we'll save your data, we'll save your customizations. It's only like 10% of the list price of the regular plan. It's one of those things that B2B SaaS people aren't using enough. You can lower cancellations by 10 to 25%. That's significant. With two questions, it's not intrusive, gives you a lot of data for your product team or you as a product leader, but it's one of those things that's really, really high impact. And then payment failures, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here, but 20 to 40% of all lost customers are typically because of credit cards. Credit cards, 130 reasons why they fail Most folks can double their recovery rates. There's a bunch of different things you can do. I would just suggest treating this segment of your customer base like a marketing channel. Plain text emails, making sure they don't have to log in to update their payment information. There's a lot of little things you can do there, but it's something to look at. All right, last but not least, pricing. Who here loves pricing? There we go, those are my people. All right, pricing isn't as complicated as a lot of people make it, okay? Every business in here, doesn't matter what you're selling, who you're selling to, what stage you're at, you've created some sort of value, and because we don't trade goat for wheat in the economies we play in, you're basically saying this value is worth this much, right? And then everything in your business, doesn't matter what it is, your sales team, your product team, your operations team, just you, again, for some of you, is used to drive someone to that point of conversion or to justify the price or the product that you're offering them, right? So there's a bunch of different levers that you have here. You have who you sell to, you have what you include in that product, you have the unbundling of that product, there's a bunch of different things that you have. But it all comes down to your buyers. I know you've all heard buyer personas, you should have buyer personas, and then only one in five companies actually have some tangible buyer personas within their, their actual company. And I'm telling you, this is the thing that separates people who are growing and people who are not because if you understand that buyer, not only does everything else get easier, but your pricing gets easier as well. Here's a framework um, that I can share. It's just a Google spreadsheet. It's not super complicated. You can make it very complicated if you want. But I'll send this out, fill it out individually, review it as an exec team, um, or just two co-founders, whatever it is, and I just ask you to debate something. Because as as soon as you start debating it, you're just gonna discover something where you disagree, and then the answer is, let's go get some data. And the way this helps with pricing is because all pricing, especially in this room, starts out like this. We got one plan. Jason Fried did a podcast and he said, one plan, right? Even though 99% of his traffic is direct, um, which makes life a lot easier. But it starts out like this. I'm telling you, simplicity with pricing does not mean just having one tier. We can make it more complicated because again, you discover, hey, we have multiple different types of customers, right? So then you go, hey, I read that Harvard Business Review article. I'm very fancy. Let's do good, better, best, right? And this is where good, better, best kind of comes from where it's like, we're a little expensive for some, we're a little cheap for others. Let's like even it out. And then you sit there and you're like, oh wait, but Walmart came in, right? We need an enterprise plan, right? Contact us, right? And that's great. That's awesome. That's what you should do. And then you get a little more educated, you get a little more sophisticated, and you're like, now we're gonna put the actual tiers differentiated how they should be, and we're gonna know, because we did our buyer persona homework, this tier is for this type of customer, this tier is for this type of customer, and so on and so forth. And then the next part of the pricing journey is gonna be, huh, we have more than four types of customers. So then you're gonna have shadow tiers. This is a hack that a lot of people don't talk about. The fastest growing SaaS companies, have over 15 different tiers. You as a customer will never see, or should never see more than two or three, but based on your engagement, based on your data, all of a sudden you get upgrade paths to these shadow tiers, right? Which is really, really powerful. And then all of a sudden you'll get a little more sophisticated and then you'll do a pricing metric, right? This is the biggest hack, some sort of scaling metric. It's one of the most powerful things you could do you don't have this, drop everything and figure out what that metric is. Per user, per thousand videos, per 500 whatsits. doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, it matters for your company, but you should have something, okay? Not going to be able to go deep into how to do this, but it's in the slides if you want to. And then all of a sudden you discover, oh, add-ons. One of the most underutilized aspects of all pricing. These are features that you've bundled because you were like, it didn't take that long to build. Or you're like, ah, we should throw it in because it's going to help with retention, even though you have no data to support that. And then you're like, oh, less than 40% of people are using this? That's a good sign. Anything that's utilized less than 40%, probably a good candidate to pull out and actually charge for it. Now, some integrations probably not, but a lot of cases, you want to pull that out and actually charge for it, and people are more than willing to pay for it. Um, customers with at least one add-on typically have about 20 to 50% higher lifetime value. Not only are they paying you more, but they're typically retained at a much, much higher rate. And then the final piece, like God mode, which you can start with if you want you start to have localization. Where you're like, oh, this country's willingness to pay is different than this country. Let's you know spread out and make sure we're pricing based on those different willingnesses to pay. But that's where things get really, really powerful. Last thing here, because I want to make sure there's some time for questions. Um, there's an email in here that not everyone should steal, but you can steal the template. This is how to raise your prices. I've gone through so many pricing changes. This is how to do it. Biggest thing, it's not about you, it's about them. You're using what's called a um, legacy discount and then actually pulling in data to remind them of how much value you've created. If you use this verbatim, it will be forwarded to me. Okay? Just don't do that. T-Mobile used this recently, which kind of aggravated me because I didn't get a cut. Um, But it was one of those things that, like, it's a really, really powerful email that I've seen work really well. Most important part is this PS if this materially impacts you or your business, depending on if you're consumer or B2B, contact us and let us know. One, it's for the people who are actually affected. Two, it's for all the folks in this room. We don't want to pay more. So even if we believe you and your, the value's there, when I see this, I'm going to go, oh, I'm not going to cause trouble. I'll give you a six on my next NPS survey, but whatever, right? Really, really powerful. Biggest thing, your job is to cuddle with the chaos, okay? Like, it's chaotic. You choose... Low outcome, medium outcome, big outcome for whatever destination you are kind of go for—it still is hard. All of it is hard, right? But well, that's ultimately your job. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions. Paticus on Twitter, PC at Paticus, if you want to jam on anything. Um, but thanks for having me. Appreciate it.